outdoors take us to summers away or winter adventures and afternoon getaways. Your dedicated Fidelity Advisor can help you open those doors by working with you on a comprehensive plan to help you reach your wealth's full potential because doors were meant to be opened. Visit fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimum supply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Tis the season to elect benefits through your workplace. Now, most people know open enrollment as decision time for healthcare coverage, but it's also the perfect moment to reassess your life insurance needs. To properly provide for their families, most people need about 10 times the life insurance coverage they've got through their jobs, which means your employer life insurance is leaving you underinsured. And that's where Policy Genius can help. Policy Genius is the easy way to shop for a life insurance plan that's not tied to your job. In minutes, you can compare quotes from top insurers to find your best price. And once you apply, Policy Genius will handle all the paperwork and red tape. So when you're looking at your workplace benefits this month, be sure to double check your life insurance options. And then go to policygenius.com to get quotes and apply in minutes. Policy Genius, the easy way to compare and buy life insurance. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These. If you are the type of person who listens to this show, and clearly you are, you probably already know that this month is National Native American Heritage Month. You probably also know and think about how November's finale holiday, Thanksgiving, is a celebration built on whitewashed historical fiction. And no matter how much you love the familial traditions that come with Thanksgiving, and I love them too, I am also willing to bet that you like me, occasionally think about the oppression and slaughter that made our annual reflection on gratitude possible. For people of privilege, it's easy to turn away from those uncomfortable thoughts. That's what privilege means. It's easy to turn down the volume on history and instead focus on some of the genuinely fulfilling and awesome things that Thanksgiving brings, breaking bread with your loved ones and being of service. How can we honor all the things that Thanksgiving means? Can we honor all the things that Thanksgiving means? Ed Shoopman is a citizen of the Muscogee tribe of Oklahoma, and he works at the Smithsonian National Museum of the American Indian. And his job is to help people navigate this exact issue. Not by giving us a yes or no answer to should you celebrate Thanksgiving, or by absolving us for doing it, but by giving us context. Using Thanksgiving to open up a larger discussion about history, Native people, and, yeah, gratitude. My conversation with him, coming right up. Ed, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm, I'm really pleased that you've invited me. 
I am pleased that you are here. Uh, this is a show that has been in discussion for a long time and that I have been thinking about for a long time because, you know, the holidays are coming. And uh, like a lot of relatively privileged white people, uh, I think I grew up not really realizing how, what the history, the problematic history of our holidays are. And as I kind of discovered it, it, it has now become a time of real reflection for me. But I also feel like I'm, my, my knowledge is very, I know there are holes in it. Hmm. And I wanted to talk to someone who could speak to the Native people's sort of perspective on Thanksgiving. But I guess I want to make very clear, I don't think this is about like seeking, you know, like absolution or saying this is okay or not okay. What I'm hoping you can help me with or guide us through is just understanding like what the deal is, you know, with Thanksgiving, like what is happening. And then maybe... Like, we'll be armed with some information and perspectives that can help those of us who kind of want to do the right thing in these situations maybe do the right thing. Does that sound like a good plan? Yeah, it sounds like something I'd be happy to talk about and and uh, and offer my my perspective about. I, I'm always hesitant to say that I represent what all Native Americans think. Right. Yeah, because uh, there's so much diversity of opinion, and and natu- naturally among among diverse peoples. But um, you know, as someone who works in education about Native Americans and has done so for a long time, I I have uh, a lot of experience with that. And and this time of year, Thanksgiving, and of course, we're also in Native American Heritage Month, is a time of year when we do get a lot of in- inquiries from from people from educators and from parents and and those who are looking for ways to um, to do the job differently and and to to reflect on a more a, a more uh, accurate and inclusive uh, understanding of of this time and in particular the uh, the Thanksgiving story what is the biggest misconception that, you know, sort of white people might have about Thanksgiving, do you think? I think it's the, the myth of the, uh, the first Thanksgiving. And it's, it's one of those things that has been part of the education of millions upon millions of people for generation after generation, uh, a story that's been perpetuated so when we grow up hearing those things as very young children, they become ingrained in our consciousness, and, and we accept them as truth and reality. But for, for Native people, Thanksgiving has a very different meaning. And we can go back to the actual history itself. Native American history is really complex, and it's nuanced. And we think, when we think about what was happening there, at uh, Plymouth in the 1600s, these were two really distinct groups who had come into contact with one another. One of them was trying to establish a, a foothold on lands that belonged to the other. We don't have a lot of firsthand information about what happened, what people were thinking there, but we can 
you know, we can we can pretty well guess that they viewed each other with some suspicion and and uh, that their relationship was probably pretty tenuous. You know, historians do know that there there was some kind of a feast. There was um, that happened. Um, there is, you know, the, there is a paragraph that's mentioned in a journal from one of the one of the pilgrims, and um, and then Thanksgiving. You know, there's uh, this idea of goodwill and uh, and peaceful relations that you know carries forward in this mythological story, but in reality that tenuous kind of peace and relationship that existed there uh, really only only existed for uh, a few decades. And then there was one of the, the bloodiest and, and most destructive wars ever fought on this continent uh, between the English colonists and the native peoples of New England that really resulted in the decimation of of native populations and some being some of the survivors being sold into slavery in the Caribbean, um, and really a pattern of the acquisition of native lands that begins at that time and continues over the next couple of centuries, from the colonies to the founding of the United States and the growth of the United States uh, across the continent, and. Um, you know, for Native Americans, that that's not a a past or a story to celebrate. So I think I think um, if 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 there's something that we're getting wrong about that Thanksgiving story, it's that it's that mythological foundational story that that we've been taught. I feel like there's maybe two parts that are misaligned here, like two separate kind of myths almost. One is the the myth of this original Thanksgiving, which it seems like maybe most people probably have, well, I don't, shouldn't say, I shouldn't assume anything <laughs> because it is <laughs> the story of that first Thanksgiving is so deeply ingrained in like white history, right? Like it is taught just in every school, in every um, state. It, it's a very pervasive uh, story and it has a stronghold mm-hmm. on people. I was thinking about how my family, who every single one of them, I think we consider ourselves like good, good liberals, good progressive white people. At Thanksgiving, we have little um, salt and pepper shakers that represent the first Thanksgiving, and I'm like, <laughs> we shouldn't use those anymore. <laughs> like I suddenly had this feeling of like, <laughs> that's part of the myth that we're enshrining like there's all these little ways that it shows up right so that's one thing and then i think there's sort of almost a second part of that which is the very literal whitewashing of that history there's the myth of the first first thanksgiving and then there's this story that we tell ourselves about thanksgiving being a time of sharing and a time of gratitude and a time at which we honor each other and have family over and that's all, those are all good things, but they kind of paper over a lot. I think that's, think that's a, that's a fair way to kind of look at it. Yeah. I mean, 
First of all, I think you should donate those salt, that salt and pepper shaker set to the Smithsonian. <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> yeah, maybe, I mean they, they should be they should be in history. In. They, that should be um, <laughs> it should be like a Confederate statue almost, right? Like yeah. it's important yeah. to know that that iconography existed, but maybe we shouldn't honor it. So, okay. Yeah, it's a teachable moment. Yes. Yeah, I mean the second part of of your analysis i think is i think is interesting i mean if there's one thing that we we can teach at this time of year that comes from that truly comes from native cultures it's it is this idea of being thankful and that's how we have approached this uh, one of the ways in which we've approached this opportunity to um help educators and who want to do things differently and to talk about this time in a way that's that's really uh, grounded in cultural values and uh, uh, something that uh, is accessible, you know, to all people. So um, we teach it, though, um, and we have resources that we, we provide online for educators and we do workshops with educators and, and we, um, we talk about it, though, as a way of life, mm-hmm. uh, of being thankful, of, of expressing your gratitude. And there are some really beautiful um, cultural expressions of that. Um, one of them comes from the Haudenosaunee people. Uh, sometimes referred to as the Iroquois, uh, from upstate New York. And they have a tradition called, um, translates to uh, the words before all else. So in this, it's a, a recitation of an acknowledgement, a recognition, an expression of gratitude for all of the things that are around us, for the animals, the waters, the plants, the rocks, the medicines, the air, and uh, our fellow human beings. And uh, this is a uh, something, the reason that they call it the words before else, it's the way that uh, gatherings are started, uh, included in some schools today mm. among the Haudenosaunee people. The, the, the kids at the school will, will say the words that come before all else, and they'll say them in their languages. And um, it sets the right frame of mind. It sets the, um, the appropriate attitude for a good meeting or for a good day of learning. So it's not just a, a thing that is done on special occasions, although it is done you know, during ceremonies and things like that. It's part of everyday life. I think it's really great if families can get together and express their gratitude for one another and be thankful for the food that's on their table and 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 do those things that are part of Thanksgiving. And and where where I part ways with it is when you know when we try to tie that in some in some inaccurate way to a story, you know, that's it's largely made up. And maybe I want to revise my analysis a little bit or at least add on to it which is to say again like i i am a huge believer in the practice of gratitude like i try to give gratitude every morning and every night for something in my life and i do think it should be a part of everyone's 
everyday life and not restricted to Thanksgiving. Hmm. What I think I was trying to get my head around was that it's very easy to think of this holiday in just all kind of sepia-toned glow because there are so many wonderful things associated with it, like you're, like we're saying, family, food, gratitude, um, football, maybe. <laughs> but I think that something that I want to try to be intentional about moving forward, or maybe two things. One is that to see if I can allow an acknowledgement of the injustice and violence that I don't want to say Thanksgiving represents, but that that is in the history here. If that can exist in the same space as gratitude, like I feel like it just needs to be acknowledged. Like you can't, Mm -hmm. like we can't just have a good, good feeling. (laughs) I don't want to harsh any, like I, I don't want to tell people what to feel, (laughs) but I think it's appropriate to have some solemnity about this time in addition to celebration. But the other thing I wanted to say, and another reason that I'm so glad to have you here, is that the way that we think about this holiday just throws into sharp relief how little we think about First Peoples the rest of the year. This is the time of year in which people think about it. White people, I should be clear. Um, And that is itself a kind of, that, that is a problem too. I read in some of the readings that one of the numbers that kind of blew me away was in one study, 62% of people surveyed said they didn't know any Native Americans. I would assume that actually probably means they don't know they know any, but it's still a remarkable statistic. And it speaks to the erasure of those people. Yeah, there's several things I want to talk about in what you just said. I mean, I appreciate what you're saying about taking a moment even if it's just a moment on Thanksgiving to reflect on our nation's history in its real history and a particular to take the opportunity to kind of demythologize, explicitly demythologize the holiday. And it brings up another term for me uh, that we sometimes talk about and we hear about in native in native country, which is, reconciliation, Mm -hmm. because that is something that we, we have not done in this country, is to come to terms with our past regarding Native peoples, to reconcile that, and to even apologize for it as a nation. That has happened in other places. Mm -hmm. It's happened in some states. The governor of California recently apologized. In Canada, They have apologized to the Native people. And there is an act of healing that's part of reconciliation that has not occurred. And so I think the the kind of reflection that you're talking about is is really appropriate and and could be be helpful in those ways. The concept of erasure is is incredibly important. Um, And there's there's an academic, Native American academic colleague of mine who— has said that invisibility is is another form of bias. Mm -hmm. And 
it's equally as harmful as being misrepresented. But you can do a really easy test of this. You can go on, on your computer and on your search engine, type in American Indian and look at the images that pop up. They've done research on this, and I believe it's like 98% of the images that pop up are Native Americans uh, of the past. Mm-hmm. So not Native Americans today or in the 1930s, but in the 1800s and, and you know, historical photography and uh, the images of people of the past. About 87% of state standards across the United States. There are scholars, a scholar who's done work analyzing the state social uh, state history standards for all 50 states. And 87% of those are Native Americans of 200 years in the past. Hmm. So one of the things that, uh, that we're doing at the National Museum of the American Indian with our education programs and is to always try to represent Native peoples as contemporary people. Mm-hmm. Uh, we tell the historical stories, and we, we embrace those, and, and um, uh, we, we are diving deep into the, the, the nuance and, and complexity of, of history. But we also want to show Native peoples as vibrant and uh, functional, uh, alive communities today. And that's, that's really missing from people's perceptions. We have a lot of people who, come, who walk through the doors of our museum and um, interact with one of our cultural interpreters. And, and a number of those are, are Native American, young Native American people who provide tours for the public. And, and they get questions like, well, aren't Native Americans all gone? Wow. They don't, they're not really around anymore, are they? So... Yeah, there's a there's a, a real uh, lack of visibility. You can st- you can see it in the statistics uh, <laughs> uh, when people are reporting statistics about about different things. They'll report what white people think and what African Americans think and what uh, you know Hispanics, Latinos think, but you very rarely see a Native American statistic attached to that. That's uh, exemplifying that invisibility. And I appreciate you didn't explicitly say this, so I'll just call myself out, which I did that uh, myself when I was talking about, I was trying to be all righteous, saying we should pay attention, you know, to the history of this country year round. I was, I admit, just thinking about history, but that's actually part of maybe the problem, (laughs) that that this is a living story, that the story doesn't end at some point, you know, 50, 100 years ago or however many years ago. Like the story of the relationship between, you know, white supremacy and people of color, including Native peoples, continues right up to this day. And there's a, there's that story needs to be paid attention to just as much as anything that might be in past tense. Yeah, there's so much there that's possible. And, uh, you know, we have incredibly talented and artistic and accomplished people uh, and authors like Tommy Orange that, whom you interviewed and uh, there's a Native American woman now who uh, is the poet laureate of the United States 
We have two Native American women who were elected to the United States House of Representatives this last year. Minnesota has a, a Native lieutenant governor, actually the highest elected yeah. office in the country, I believe, held by a Native person. And then we have um, incredibly accomplished artists, and uh, our communities are economic, uh, economically involved, not just uh, locally, but globally. Um, and uh, so we are part of the fabric of, of, of this country. And, um, but that, that rarely, you know, gets exposed. And uh, so those are the kinds of stories that, that we're trying to add to our resources uh, and the ways in which that we are enc- we're encouraging educators across the country to supplement and to, uh, to add to the, to the um, uh, curriculum uh, wherever they are. We're going to take a quick break, and then I want to come back and talk some more about uh, maybe your history. Be right back. So I don't want to get into the intensely TMI personal details here, but um, I've been without my third love bras for a few weeks, and it has been almost literally painful. Uh, Not like the emotional separation, but not having the most comfortable bras I own. I've been forced to wear other bras, and I finally actually am going to have my third lip bras back. And I know this sounds all weird, but I'm just not going to tell you what the situation is. I'm just really grateful to get them back. They are the most comfortable bras that I own, and it's probably because of the half-size cups thing, which is they're the only company that has that. But they also have like tagless uh, straps, uh, and they have like cool memory foam cups. And also the cups are designed for your breasts. Uh, You can get different kinds of cups for the different kinds of breasts that there are. Did you know there were different kinds of breast shape? Perhaps you only know your own. You just have to take their online quiz and you'll be walked through what the appropriate bra style is for you. Are you a bell-shaped type? Do you perhaps point in a different direction? Whatever it is, you can actually take this quiz and you don't have to go through the embarrassing ordeal of having someone else look at your girls and tell you what they think about them. I genuinely love Third Love. I have worn them since before they were a sponsor of the show. You can probably tell by this ad. I will tell you the things that they want me to say. Every customer has 60 days to wear, wash, and put their bras to a test. And if you don't love them, you can return them and Third Love will wash them and donate them to a woman in need. They do have a team of expert stylists should you want to have an actual human being help you out with your bra selection. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone, and right now they are offering my listeners 15% off their first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash friends now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first order. That's thirdlove.com slash friends for 15% off today. Would you buy a t-shirt for $50 if you knew it only cost $7 to make? I wouldn't. And with Everlane, you don't have to either. You will never overpay for quality clothes. Everlane only makes premium essentials using the finest materials without traditional markups. They want you to know what you're paying for and why. So they tell you about their real costs and are radically transparent about every step in the process. 
from the materials they use to the ethical factories they work with. Everlane's clothes look better, cost less, and last longer. Because Everlane sells directly to you, their prices are 30 to 50% lower than traditional retailers. Essentials like their Cotton Crew t-shirt are exactly what they should be. Simple, stylish, and made from quality materials. Everlane has great products, quality cotton basics, premium Japanese denim made at the world's cleanest denim factory, perfectly fit Oxford shirts, and outerwear made from recycled bottles. I personally love their cashmere sweaters. They are part of my winter uniform. Everlane's timeless essentials are just what you're looking for. No frills, just quality. And right now, you can check out my personalized collection at everlane.com slash friends, and you will get free shipping on your first order. That is everlane.com slash friends, everlane.com slash friends. Doors take us to summers away or winter adventures and afternoon getaways. Your dedicated Fidelity Advisor can help you open those doors by working with you on a comprehensive plan to help you reach your wealth's full potential. Because doors were meant to be opened. Visit fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimum supply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. So something that, that I talk about on this show every once in a while is that we shouldn't expect... Um, people of marginalized communities to we shouldn't expect them to do the education for us, right? That this is not something that is their job. But obviously, you work at the Smithsonian. This is something you've chosen to do. Like this is a, a purpose that that you have taken on. And I'm wondering, how did that come about? what What attracted you to to this mission? Uh, that's it's, it's a great question, and it's a hard one to pinpoint. Maybe if I just talk about the history a little bit, it'll, it'll emerge. I think that um, I started doing this work in 1988, and I was hired by uh, a Native American education consulting firm to uh, work directly with uh, in communities where Native American students are being educated to write culture-based curriculum materials, to do training with teachers and, and do other kinds of education work like evaluation and those things. And that job took me to communities all over the country. And everywhere that I went, I saw uh, the kinds of issues that we've been talking about. You know, the invisibility, the, the um, inability of communities to be able to control their own children's educations, um, uh, a, a real sense of uh, the need to preserve languages, to preserve cultures. And, um, you know, it just, it was, a, it was a, I guess, a mission that, um, continued to grow and grow as I did the work. Um, and then I spent a couple of years, I did this for, I did that for a long time, about 14 years. And then I spent a couple of years working for the Bureau of Indian Education. And that's part of the interior department. And, and uh, the BIE has a system of schools that it funds uh, that work with Native American students around the country. 
and I had co-written a, a culture-based health curriculum that um, I was hired to come and develop a national teacher training program for. So again, it was working at the grassroots level with people in those communities and, and seeing the needs and seeing the, uh, 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 the opportunity to um, kind of help communities uh, get at some of the really deeper issues uh, with resources that had some relevance. And then the opportunity to, came to come to the Smithsonian, the National Museum of the American Indian, in 2004 when it opened here in Washington. And uh, it was a bit of a shift because instead of, instead of education for Native Americans, it, it became education up for Native Americans and about Native Americans for, for all other people. So, um, but it's been, you know, an incredible opportunity to work for a, a, a you know, a nationally known uh, organization that has educational integrity and a, and a good reputation for research and uh, um and to be able to continue to serve Native American communities everywhere, including you know across the Western Hemisphere, inc including Central South America, First Nations, and Canada, and Alaska Natives, um, and to continue to to kind of work away at these you know these ongoing issues in education, and um, in some ways it's you know it's still the same. The same issues that we're we're addressing that that were that existed when I started in this in 1988. You'll have to excuse me if I I I wanted to ask it, the fact that they're same issues sort of makes me sad mm -hmm. because I would hope that there's been some improvement, but um, seems like maybe not. Like, do you just see the same issues happening over and over? Like, there's been no corrective course. No, I, th I think there has been some improvement, but it's a it's a big stone to roll, you know. Yeah. Uh, these things, uh, attitudes that uh, have been ingrained in, in you know for for centuries, misperceptions and 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 also very complex social and political psychological issues that are connected to education. You know, it takes a lot, and it takes a lot of people working from different directions to to make change. But I do see change, and I see change happening at a variety of levels. Um, there are tribal communities themselves who have really been proactive and really taken positive steps to create their own curricula, to develop their own tribal education standards, to... Uh, to really, really take control of their own schools. And, and there also is a lot of really positive work that's happening at the state level in a number of states that have passed legislation that requires better education about Native Americans. And those, some of those efforts are being supported by the development of new resources and materials for, for teachers and uh, training opportunities and... and um, and then there are a lot of organizations, uh, you know, besides our own that's, that's, that are involved in this. So 
You know, I think there, I think there has been change, and there's good leadership, and there, there, there's a lot of conversation. And I think right now is really, it just seems like there's a, a lot of synergy that's developing, and a lot of convergence of of uh, these conversations and and opportunities that exist that really didn't exist when you know back when I started. So I think I think things are moving, and right now things seem to be moving at a pretty good pace. It's amazing to hear someone talk about these things <laughs> and moving in a, in a, in a good direction at this particular point in American history with everything else going on in American politics. But I think it's an important reminder that not everything, you know, politics isn't just what happens on CNN. You know, there's local politics, which you're pointing out the importance of local politics in this particular issue, that that's, a place where people can really look to make some specific changes, the local and state level. It's really critical, and, and uh, you know, not every not everything in the education system is top down. Uh, the federal government does have a role uh, in education, obviously, and um, you know, legislation is part of that, national legislation, and, and how Native American students are, are served in that. But what happens in the classroom, that, that's, where, that's where the magic happens. And um, it's teachers, teachers who can make the difference. And when teachers are empowered, uh, you know, the word about Thanksgiving is getting out there. A lot of, a lot of people are, are aware that, you know, this— Story is probably a little problematic, maybe not be true, <laughs> you know, not quite sure what to think about it or what to do about it. But we work with teachers all the time who are, are quite aware that the narrative is not right and, and there needs to be a, uh, a corrected narrative, a, a one that's more authentic, one that's appropriate. And uh, they're looking for help to find those things. They're looking for examples. They're looking for... Uh, the confidence to to not be offensive or to not um, be inaccurate, and and so <clears throat> when there are uh, opportun- you know when there are sources to support that curiosity and and the motivations that teachers have, then then real change can happen. So that's that's exciting for us, and and when we we have the opportunity to bring teachers to our museum and spend time with them. And we, we see real change happening, and they, they tell us about that, how their perspectives have been altered. And, and really, uh, in some ways, what we are talking about is a fundamental shift in how non-natives view and think about and understand Native people. It's that basic, but it's, it's necessary because of Everything that's been inherited and you know passed down and inherited through the education system and through popular media and through you know movies and politics and and all all the things that have perpetuated mistaken ideas and stereotypes over the centuries. Like you said, it's a it's a heavy stone to roll, but it sounds like there is there's been movement. Yeah, yeah, and it's really exciting to be part of that. I feel like this there's. A certain obviousness as to why talking about these issues are important, but I can imagine that there are people who think, "Well, 
this is history. Of course, we need to acknowledge it. But um, what? why is this relevant to me now? That would be a non-Native person saying that, I, I presume. Mm-hmm. How would you respond to that? I think we do think about that a lot. I think about it a lot because it's one thing to say, you know, this is important to Native Americans or this is, like you said, this is, you know, it's important that we know the history. And, but when real relevance occurs, and this, this, this is for adults and children alike, uh, it's like, how does it connect to me? Why is it relevant to me? And I was thinking yesterday, in our museum, we had a, a naturalization ceremony yesterday in the museum. It was uh, just sometimes groups will come and use our facility for different things. And there was a naturalization ceremony there. It was the first time I'd had an opportunity to see one. And I was so struck because um, there were 60 applicants from 51 different countries. And I thought, you know, this is so perfectly uh, symbolic of, of how diverse this country really is. And I think part of the problem is that we, haven't, we don't acknowledge our diversity. And we're pushing, some people are pushing back against our diversity for whatever reasons, I'm sure for a variety of reasons. Mm. <laughs> but whether we like it or not, we are a vastly diverse nation. And we need to come to terms with that. We need to show equity in education and be culturally responsive to the, the, the students who are in, sitting in those chairs. And that's no longer a, a monolithic group. Mm-hmm. So we have, to, we have to recognize those things and, rec- and recognize that through this type of education, when we're inclusive, when we show ec- equity, and when we actually not just recognize but embrace our diversity, then I think we have the opportunity as a nation to grow and, and grow in a way that reflects who we really are. In a world of fake news, controversy feels more contemporary than ever, but in politics, it's a story as old as time. Follow along from Ballot to Fallout and Parcast Network's sizzling new podcast, Political Scandals. Every Tuesday leading up the 2020 election, Political Scandals will count down the 52 most scandalous political events in American history, uncovering the ugly truth behind some of our most infamous elected officials. Each episode will dive into a different rise and fall, perhaps rise again, exploring the impact it had on careers involved and the lasting effects on history. From Watergate to the Clinton impeachment to Chappaquiddick and the 2000 recount, dig deeper into stories you knew, you thought you knew, or had no idea changed the face of politics. Red state, blue state, left or right, no scandal is off the record, no politician off limits. Follow the new limited series Political Scandals, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts, or visit parcast.com slash political scandals to listen now. I was also thinking on a not so optimistic note that of course <laughs> the other problem is is that if we don't look this history in the eye, if we don't look our current situation in the eye, then we will repeat these mistakes. Mm-hmm. And cruelty will be exacted. 
you know, like I was just thinking about, you said you'd, you've done, you know, uh, work w- with Native peoples across the Western Hemisphere. I was just thinking about uh, the fires in the Amazon and the Native people there who were being systematically exterminated, you know, mm-hmm. right now in the 21st century, right? That's right. Well, yeah, there's, there is all that. And, um, we, and part of the way that we, we're approaching education is to provide students with the primary sources, the stories both historical and contemporary, and let them analyze them. And, and then to ask questions that um, draw, draw out the relevancy and, and look at why, why does this matter? And one of those questions is, you know, is this being repeated anywhere now? Are there examples of this that are, that are happening now? And actually, I mean, it's not just in other countries, right? I mean, we still, no. as a country, are systematically undermining Native peoples, maybe not with quite the force that Brazil is doing, mm-hmm. right? Not the explicit force, right. but healthcare right. outcomes are dramatically um, inequitable. Uh, access to all kinds of things is it, it has, you know, dramatically different. And there's still the problem of the land. <laughs> I mean, that's right. Like, yeah, y- you were talking about reconciliation. I mean, what about reparations? That seems mm-hmm. appropriate to discuss. You know, like it seems to me also very interesting that you hear reparations being talked about in a more open way among Democrats today. I feel like you don't often get the the native people brought up into that particular conversation. Am I missing something or is that another erasure? I think it's an it's it's missing from the conversation. Yeah. And I I I find it really mysterious and and uh and disturbing in some ways because native american law and politics is a really complicated field and mm-hmm. Uh, it is something that is probably beyond my expertise. I feel I feel this area of this particular area because there have you know the United States has uh, passed some laws, especially in more recent history, that are more favorable to Native Americans that um, acknowledge you know uh, the ability to self govern. Right. And to recognize the the sovereign rights of of native nations within the United States, and the ability to, um, uh, in some places, operate gaming facilities for economic boost, and the ability to practice, we had to have a special law to be able to practice religious traditions, and uh, uh, another law that uh, Indian Child Welfare Act that protects. Um, uh, Native American uh, adoption uh, needs and so forth it protects the uh, protects kids from being adopted out of their communities, and so you know there have been things that that have have been favorable, but on the other hand. <laughs> Like, there's still, like, the whole country. I mean, like, I don't know exactly how it would work, (laughs) 
But I know. Like I am right now. I mean, all of this. I mean, I feel silly pointing this out almost like I'm we I'm standing on stolen land. You know, like I'm especially aware of it here in Minnesota, where actually the reason I'm aware of it here is because I feel like the state has done a fairly better than average job at making Native people visible, you know, Mm. but very few people got paid for this, (laughs) right? Like, isn't that just an overarching issue in some way? Like, I, I don't, it's, it's such a big issue. I don't even know how to articulate. Like, I, I guess we, we couldn't go backseas on it, obviously. <laughs> but there's just a huge, fundamental, impossibly big injustice that is the foundation of this country. Like, I, I mean, I think it's hard to get your head around if you're a white person, actually. Like, everything, everything is founded on, you know, a massacre. Everything. That's, maybe I shouldn't be thinking that way. What am I, tell me. (laughs) I don't know quite where to go. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, I like to talk about it in terms of everything in this country really was, is built on the back of, uh, on, you know, on native lands on the back of slave, slave labor. Yes, yes. At, At least at its found, at some of its foundations. And, and, it is such a. It would be. It's such a massive scope of of considerations that it is hard to wrap your head around. Really hard. And but native native communities today are still trying to defend their lands. Um, still still fighting challenges to their uh, their their water rights or their their rights to manage their own resources on their lands. Uh, it always falls on the, the shoulders of, of Native American communities and leaders to educate, uh, you know, educate the leaders at state government level or, or uh, the cities and towns that surround reservations about the, right, you know, the rights that, that tribes have based on their treaties with the United States and, and uh, even, even educating Congress people and, and and presidents and, and <laughs> if presidents can uh, be educated, others who are <laughs> who, yeah, who are ignorant, you know, yeah. about yeah. about this, and and I don't feel like Native Americans have have been uh, fairly compensated for their losses <laughs> uh, at all in the his, history. I am of this sorry country. to laugh, but that is like literally the understatement of the millennia, <laughs> like. <laughs> I can think of no greater understatement, like (laughs) racking my brain. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I, you ask why, why, why nothing's been done? I think probably because nobody wants to take that on. Nobody's willing to take that on. Well, it seems like it should be something along the lines of what people have sketched out for reparations for African-Americans in the sense that why don't we just start with a study, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you got to start someplace. Like, it would be, I'm sure someone, maybe you know, has anyone done, tried to do like sort of a fair market evaluation of how, of of the value of what has been stolen in the United (laughs) States? You know, that's a a great question. And it wouldn't surprise me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't know. 
Because I, I think it might know. be literally incalculable. Yeah, where would you start? Yeah, it's just an astronomical number. There's no actuary yeah. or real estate agent that could possibly calculate it. Yeah, and you know, the other thing that that, that uh, we say to teachers is that we're not doing this to make people feel guilty. What we can do with those feelings uh, that you're talking about and those 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 kind of uh, moments of awareness that are happening is to actualize them mm-hmm. and use them to move forward. What can we do now? How can we change this? And for me, education is the brightest hope. And if we can if we can get people to uh, acknowledge acknowledge their history and and in all its complexity and and its greatness and and failures and 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 not be afraid of that uh, but to use that to forge new kinds of relationships then then maybe maybe it won't be such hard work you know to think about reconciliation or it won't be recognized as work you know yeah exactly like sometimes it's a peculiar skill of mine. I can bring almost every subject on this show back to my own um, recovery. But sometimes when I tell people like what is involved in being an alcoholic in recovery, they say things like that sounds like a lot of work. And I can tell you and I, I can tell them like, no, no, it's not. It's, 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 it's what I do in order to survive. It's what I do in order to feel okay in the world. So perhaps that's a perspective that more people can have. It's not work if you want to do it. It's, uh, I think, a perspective to be thankful for. (laughs) Bringing things full circle. Mm -hmm. This has been great. I really, 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 really appreciate it. I feel like I've learned a lot and thought through a lot. Thank you so much again for this opportunity. Really appreciate it. And that's it for the show. From here in Minnesota, where I stand on Dakota land, surrounded by place names that shouldn't ever let me forget it, I wish you a thoughtful holiday, however you choose to mark it. Doors take us to summers away. Or winter adventures and afternoon getaways. Your dedicated Fidelity Advisor can help you open those doors by working with you on a comprehensive plan to help you reach your wealth's full potential. Because doors were meant to be opened. Visit fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimum supply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.